This is the In Search More podcast, and I will see you on the other side. So here we are, the first episode of uh, this series. And, you know, one of the things that had me thinking, uh, this wasn't actually something I, I shared with someone, but just observing um, a conversation or a situation and realizing that our most sacred responsibility as human beings might just be to, to break the cycle, to break the generational cycles of crap that just exists in us and not pass it on to our kids. Because it's just, I mean, if I can tell you the amount of times I've just seen it, I've seen it where someone has something and then you see it in their kid and you see it in their grandkid and you just see how it's going to be uh, created somewhere else. The first place I think I saw this First time I was introduced to the concept, you know, a lot of people talk about addiction as, oh, it's genetic. Their father was an alcoholic, so they're an alcoholic too. It's like, really, it's genetic? Because every story I've ever heard of any addict, it's got pain in it. So what was genetic about that? Was it genetic to, to, to become an alcoholic? Because without that story of pain, I don't think this guy becomes an alcoholic. Gabor Mate, who's one of my... Um, men on the addiction front, one of the guys I listened to a lot and learned a lot from, you know, he says, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. So what's genetic about that? In other words, are you saying that there can be someone out there whose dad was an alcoholic and he somehow has a good childhood, right? Again, that's probably gonna be pretty tough if your dad's an alcoholic, but he somehow has an okay childhood. And the only reason he becomes an alcoholic is because genetically he had the alcoholic gene. I, it just doesn't sit with me. What's more likely is there was a certain um, unresolved issue in one generation that caused dad to become an alcoholic that then continued to exist in the home of the child. So he became al alcoholic. And then... Dad being an alcoholic is a pretty good reason for the child, for his child to become an alcoholic and so on. So is, the, is it the conditions that are being repeated or is it the genes that somehow X, you know, right. chromosome number 19, you're an alcoholic no matter what happens. I just, I don't buy it. So, when so you, what's the medical community saying about that? I think in addiction, you'll see a lot of different stuff. Whatever you want to believe, you'll find supported is what I think. But certainly someone like Gabor Mate and that model of addiction being pain, I, there, there has to be, you can say genetic predisposition, I have no issue with that, right? That there are certain people are more prone to resolving their pain through addiction. But just purely that gene is the alcoholic gene. Like that's all you need and you become an alcoholic. It's like that's a gene enough for a person to be over six feet tall. And if you have this gene, then you're automatically an alcoholic. No, there's got to be pain. There's got to be a story. And in all the years... I've been in recovery meetings and all the stories I've heard and at mic drop, we heard a ton of stories. There was always that. There was always a story of pain. There was never, there was never nothing there to, to justify that. And you'll hear certain themes of pain. I should say that as well. So, you know, certainly for um, sex addicts, which I talk a lot about, you'll hear a lot often of sexual trauma. Not 100% of the time, but you'll hear that theme fairly often. There's sexual trauma in one's life and then sexual act, acting out. There's also, you hear a lot of the feeling of loneliness, just this general feeling of 
not being fully connected to anyone else and that being a theme that eventually that feeling that often manifests itself uh, through addiction and i don't when we were doing mic drop together did you notice that the, the patterns in different stories and how different stories resulted in different uh yeah i mean there was definitely um the there were some patterns in stories um but before that what i'm curious Let's say I don't know anything about addiction. I don't understand it. It's a word that I've heard fleetingly, right? How does, and let, let's, let's get a bit granular, right? Like with sexual addiction specifically. Like it sounds like for a lot of people on the outside, like this cool addiction to have almost, right? Like out of all the addictions, this is probably the one you want to be stuck with, right? But I felt the exact opposite, right? I felt the exact opposite. I guess it depends who you're sleeping with, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but as someone that, that doesn't know much about it, let's say, what kind of jumps out at me is if the addiction, like how come the addiction that's rooted in some sort of trauma a lot of the times, why would someone go towards that as opposed to like that fire burnt me? I'm never gonna near, gonna near, go, going to go near that fire again. Let me go the other way. Oh, interesting. Right. So you're saying, and some people do, mm. and some people do. So why it happens, I'm not 100% sure. I was speaking to someone, um, you know, we mentioned conversations. I was speaking to someone a few weeks ago who mentioned, um, so she was sexually abused as a child, and today she's basically, I don't know if she used this word, but I'll use the word as sexual anorexic. Mm. Right, where sex is off limits. And in her, her mind, everything is kind of prim and proper and perfect. Mm -hmm. And what I was sharing with her is that, hey, just because we reacted the exact opposite to sexual abuse doesn't mean one of, one or more, one, one of us is more screwed up than the other. Mm. We both reacted to something really positive and good. And what I mean is that, like, holy, sacred yeah. sexuality. Should be, yeah. And from it, it being in, introduced to us in a negative way, for whatever reason, she recoiled from it saying, I never want to go back there. And I kept wanting to go back there and maybe try to resolve it in some way or re or reapproach it in a way that I I'm still connected to it. But, you know, think of it as someone who's, um, has a problem with food and one person doesn't eat at all. And one person doesn't stop eating. One is not healthier than the other. Right. Would you rather be a, you know, a hundred pounds overweight or a hundred pounds underweight. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. In some way, underweight's a little more dangerous. Mm. Right. And I don't mean that physically, right. but in some way, the thought process, I know for um, anorexia in general, a stump psychologist in some, in some ways more than, more than others is because the person at the other end of the table, instead of someone kind of overweight, it's all hanging out mm -hmm. or someone, you know, with sexual addiction, it's all kind of hanging out. It's sleeping right. with everyone. And this way, it's like, no, everything's okay. I put it in a closet and it's dealt with. I don't have a problem with food. I don't eat. I don't have a problem with sex. I don't, I don't have sex. So convincing someone like that, that they have a problem or shattering the denial, so to speak, uh, is harder. But I don't want to segue. Let's go back to uh, the idea of, of breaking the cycle, uh, breaking the cycle and the sacred responsibility each one of us as I'll just share a couple of uh, a couple of different um, anecdotes things. So there was uh, one, one situation I saw where, you know, without sharing too much of the, the details, 
and exposing anyone's um, privacy. I knew several generations of this family. I know several generations of this family. Mm-hmm. And literally, mother, daughter, granddaughter all have virtually the same story. I was responsible to take care of my children, to take care of my siblings. I was emotionally responsible or physically responsible or somehow I had responsibility, almost parental style responsibility for them. And I wasn't appreciated by my mother for it. Each one had anger at their mother. Each one never resolved. That's a sacred responsibility, right? The sacred Uh responsibility is to resolve that anger towards their mother. Either they say, oh, I have to honor my mother so I can't resolve it. Or my mother is so messed up so I can't resolve it. Either way, they came to the same place, unhealed trauma, and then their child literally doing the exact same thing, literally coming to the exact same conclusion. I'm upset at my mother because she thrust me into a role of parental responsibility for my siblings, and she doesn't appreciate me. And each one did one other thing that was uh, so interesting, was they all changed one variable of what it was they grew up with in order to be able to tell their child, oh no, yours was better. So in one case, they had to work. Actually, you know, physically go to work as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And that was the way the parental responsibility manifested itself. So they were able to, oh, you didn't have to do that to their daughter. You didn't have to go to work. At least you didn't. Yeah, but she had to do something else. Right. And on and on we go with that. Unhealed trauma somehow manifesting itself in the next generation. And hopefully one day, like I said, I know the granddaughter and young 20s today, and hopefully she does something different and she breaks that cycle. And how does she break the cycle? What am I talking about? Like I said earlier, is resolving the emotional hurt and anger that she holds toward, toward, towards her mother, forgiving her for that, and then not, not needing to pass it on to the child, not needing to play the same role. And saying, I'm okay. I can forgive my mother for that. How does one even recognize that, that they're in that kind of cycle where it's not like something that's more blatant, like maybe sexual addiction or drug addiction, where it feels almost more of like an emotional um, hurdle, if you will, that they got to overcome? How, how do you recognize that so you can even get to healing? Yeah, I'm trying to think if I could... Um... I'm trying to think if I can share a personal example without getting mama or papa upset uh, so I can give that. But so I can give a personal example where I was able to, to do that. And I'm sure there's many more mm-hmm. um, that I haven't, that I haven't done it with, but actually I have, I have an example. I'll give my own son something that I, um, uh, something, something that I learned, but what I'll answer is it's tough to see. And if you hear in this, the example that I gave to, that I gave you, each one changed a variable. So I say, I am nothing like. Right. Almost any time you're trying to distance yourself from someone in a way that I am not like them, you're going to, you're responding mm-hmm. in too strong a way. So for example, if someone is coming for the approach, I grew up without money, mm-hmm. right? So I'm going to uh, make sure that my kids have money. So you're reacting to something. You're modeling it by doing the exact opposite of versus being true to yourself. You're not saying that I'm going to raise my child the way I think makes the most sense, saying, oh, my dad got me so angry because they did X, Y, and Z, I'm going to shift. So in the example I gave you, each one thinks they did something so different than their mom that their child would have no reason to do it. But because they didn't, they weren't actually coming from a true and authentic place, they were responding to, Mm. 
I want to be exactly the opposite of, they just continued it in, in pretty much the same way. So by wanting to be exactly the opposite of, uh, we became we became the same. I'll give you an example. Another example that, yeah, that came to me. Uh, that, that just hit home so crazy. But yeah, go ahead. In what way to hit home? Like exactly what you just said. You know, growing up, I had like this fractured relationship with my dad. And um, when I had my son, like that was literally my approach. Like my dad fucked up. I'm going to like go overboard. And it manifested in a way where when my child was, when my son was born, like no one could come near him, literally. Like not his mom sometimes, you know, grandma was here, there to help. Like I would literally day and a half, two days with him, just nonstop. No one touch him. And it kind of like went on and progressed. And like we got really close and it was some tension in the household where it's like, bro, you got to like ease up a little bit. And I'm like, you know, I didn't realize at the time, but I was like, like you said, the strong reaction to what I experienced, you know, and then that didn't so really. Let me just put some meat on the bone. Yeah. So you're saying that the strong reaction to you experience of dad was not around. Right. Yep. With my son, dad's going to be around. Over like. Right. But then dad's everywhere. Dad's everywhere. Yeah. Right. And pushing other people out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure. And that didn't really resolve itself until I got to my dad and we kind of hashed things out, you know, and now we're in a better place and, and, you know, kind of came full circle so yeah just saying that like i definitely relate to that 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 reacting that overcompensating almost right you know i, I shared that a lot of this um these episodes will be kind of a, a window into conversations i have without breaking anyone's confidentiality but this is a cool story that shares the same concept so uh, i'm speaking to someone who's struggling with their with their son and he keeps saying like you know i don't know what he has to complain about he has everything I was like, what do you mean he has everything? He kept saying this, this thing, he has everything. I'm like, what do you mean he has everything? Well, wow, whose definition? Is, right. What do you mean everything? What's everything? And, you know, it took a couple of minutes. Everything meant money, right? And this guy had grown up very poor. And for himself, he was able to give his kids a good life, right? And he, he built a career. He's able to give his kids a good life financially. And to him, he had everything. So I said, let me, um, let me give you an example of one way he didn't have everything. So I was thinking what, what I can share with him that would, that would resonate with him. So I said, you know, he once told me that for whatever reason, he didn't feel comfortable around kids, grade school, high school. He didn't feel comfortable with some of his friends. He didn't even want to invite people into his house. He felt uncomfortable. His house was nicer than some of his other, you know, friends because you did well. And for whatever reason, he interpreted that as I'm different than the others. I don't want to invite them over. And the dad's sitting there and he says to me, interesting, when I was a kid, I didn't want to have friends come over to my house either. So he said, but it was for the opposite reason. Mm. I thought my house was broken down and dilapidated. Like I didn't want anyone to see the way I lived. So I said, to you, it's the exact opposite. But to anyone else, it's exactly the same. You created the conditions that somehow your kid felt the exact same way you you did, but you think it's so different because for the exact opposite reason. We've just recreated it. And what was he doing? Right? So what would I say break the cycle? He, he was responding to, he wasn't, he wasn't coming from a place of, or isn't coming from a place of, I want to give my child the best based on what I understand. 
he's coming from, I want to give the exact opposite of what I had. I'm still so angry about my childhood and I have no intention of looking back there. I have no intention of resolving it. So I'm just going to do exactly like you said, I'm going to do the opposite. My dad was all in my face. It was, it was at, was out of um, the picture completely. I'm going to be in their face. I'm going to show I'm nothing like my dad. Don't show you nothing like your dad. Show you like you. But in order to show you're like you, you got to heal the childhood stuff. And we're so resistant to that, that instead of breaking the cycle, we'll repeat the cycle. And I'm telling you, it would not shock me. It completely would not shock me if this kid somehow, when he has kids, his son is just uncomfortable bringing friends over. And it's for some completely different reason. But he's not comfortable for anyone for, to bring anyone. What does it mean he's not comfortable for anyone coming over? He's not comfortable for his friend, his childhood friends, to see into that part of his life. He doesn't feel safe enough with them. He doesn't feel safe enough at home. He doesn't want to connect the two worlds, my friends and my family. There's got to be this wall. And he'll find a different reason. And he'll think, I raised my kid exactly the opposite because I didn't say this, which is what bothered me so much about what my father did. And now you just repeat in the cycle. Same Most, thing. Same thing. So that's, that's what I think. I'll share this last um, personal story on this note. Uh, you know, can I get like a little spiritual for a second? Go for it. Go for it. It's not too, not Let's too do far. It. Let's do it. So I think there's a level at which our kids are our teachers. Right? What am I at? Kids 100%. are our teachers. 100%. So I know a lot of people say that, but I'll tell you why I think our kids are our teachers. Spiritual. So, you know, all of us are souls living a human experience. If we're looking at it from that perspective. And if we are souls living a human experience, then the human experience drags a soul down just a little bit. You know, the soul isn't, we got to find the soul because it's been living in human experience for right. a long time. So here I am, 30 something years on the planet, 33, 34 years old, and God blesses me with a son. At one day old, he is one day removed from being just soul. At one year old, he's one year removed. I'm 35, I'm 35 years. So, so he's got a lot of truth to be able to share with me. Anyway, um, he's about three years old. And every day I'm dropping him off at school. This is your son. My son. Yeah. Every day I'm dropping him off at school. And it's a new school. And he's making a scene almost every day. He's crying and I'm like, hey, let me, you know, let's get him comfortable. Let's talk to the school a little bit. It was, you know, for a period of time, a little bit of a scene. That, um, that he was making when I, when I dropped him off at school. And I told him some breathing stuff. I told him, uh, <laughs> smell your hand and blow it away. Smell your hand and blow it away, right? You'll feel more comfortable. And slowly he was getting more comfortable, but I noticed each time from the car as he was going into the class, he was running to the teachers. And it kind of like, something bothered me about that. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I, underst I understood it on some level, the teacher's comfort, but what would... What would you want to see from your son? What would I want to see from my son? Is the comfort would come from kids his age, from his friends. Right. Right? Right. Like that's where he would, I guess what you want to see, not running into the school in the arms of the teacher. Nothing wrong at three, but I'm saying that's catching my eye as something that's like, okay, like hopefully that'll change over a little time and he'll feel more comfortable um, running into the arms of, not running into the arms of his friends, but going to play with his friends and be excited to see that. And that's what would get him excited at being in a space where he, his parents aren't there. His siblings aren't there. And this is bothering me just a little bit. And, you know, I meditate a little bit and I'm meditating on this and said, okay, this is bothering me, right? There's a lot of different stimuli in the room and that one's catching my attention. Mm. I could have focused on a lot of different things. The car in front of me, the car behind me, the song on the radio, the person who's calling, who's not calling. But this thing 
that my son is going towards teachers and not towards friends. It's like something is bothering me. And then I was like, okay, where do I do that? Where do I do that? And what I realized is that like in some way he's repeating the cycle of me where in my closest relationships, I don't want to say close relationships, but where I was the most comfortable opening up were in these settings with sponsor, sponsee, therapist, doctor, mentor, mentee. There was something about the relationship that was unequal. And I was like, all right, that's my, that's, that's my um, safe zone. I was like, okay, this is something I got to work on. Right. So I said, I remember sitting in the meditation and it's like, okay, it's coming up for me. And I'm noticing this is my son because this is something in me that's unhealed. And I start, I start focusing on that and saying, okay, where are some relationships that I can lean in just a little bit more? And those are more equal relationships, right? So for example, my wife, my business partner, my, uh, my brother, right? Different friends in general, you, et cetera, where I'm saying, okay, these are more equal relationships. And in these relationships, can I be the most true and the most honest in those versus the most open with my sponsor or my mentor? Is it always an unequal relationship that creates the most comfort for me? And as I started to shift that, I kid you not, I didn't have a conversation with my three-year-old son about this. What am I going to explain? He just started going to friends without me saying word to this day. Friends, he's got play dates, what's going on, and I think it's connected. Call me crazy, but I think it's connected. There's some sort of generational thing that if I resolve it, he doesn't have to live with it. If I don't, I'm saddling him, him with it. And that's why I think that it's our most sacred responsibility to find those things. We won't find all of them, but find those things that we're holding on to that are unresolved and break the cycle so we don't have to pass it on to the kids because they'll have a tough enough life right. without our own stuff. So I'm curious, what popped in my head is it, the example you just gave, the story you just shared, is that a, is that a two-person cycle? It's just you and your son, or did this happen with you and someone um, ahead of you in the line, like a father or a grandfather or, or someone else? If your question is, do I remember my father having close friendships and things like that? No, it's not my memory of hmm. him to have super close friends were relationships, but I think I saw some of that dynamic too, where not that there weren't friends, but there did, there didn't seem to be those kind of um, equal relationships, which nurtured him the most. No, I didn't see that. Gotcha. And how far back it went, who knows? Hmm. Yeah, no, not, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, man. Like breaking the cycle is super important. And, um, yeah, like, you know, when you think of setting up your kids for success, which as parents we all want to do, we, we, we tend to think like surface level, you know, you know, financials, you know, you know, locations, you know, all this stuff. But it's really the stuff that's underneath. Right. And um, that's that's really where where the focus needs to be and, and the light needs to be even brighter. So, yeah, I hear you. I hear you breaking the cycle and. And that's cool. So now when he, now when he, you drop him off to school, he goes straight to the homies. I see him with friends. He comes back. He's talking about friends. He has play dates at the end of school. It's just amazing. A different kid. A that's different amazing. Kid. So if you had to, if you had to sum it up, obviously you said it's it's the most sacred things that we can do as humans. Um, how does how does one, again, yeah, how do you recognize? what cycle you're trapped in and and 
where do you find the tools to help you break them? Do you lean in into your relationships? Is it professional help? What would you suggest? Uh, probably the, you know, in the, in the analogy I gave and the story I gave about my own son, it's, it's paying attention, right? So A, assuming they're there, they're there. We're not, we're not perfect human beings. Otherwise, why were we born? So A, like, let's get off of that. We're not these perfect people. We're not meant to be perfect people. We don't have to pretend we're perfect people. And from there, we're saying, okay, what is it that I got to heal? Because there's no question that there's stuff. And then it's finding what they are. And if we're, we're paying attention and we're looking for it, I mean, that's what is in search of more. What, is, what do we talk about? We assume there's more to everything, right? We assume there's more. We don't go around with this. We're not living life with this concept of, I got it. I found it. I know everything. One of my favorite quotes is, if you think you found the way, you're lost. I don't know who said it, but I love them anyway. The, and here's, here's true, the same, is breaking the cycle. We're definitely holding on to stuff that we're passing on. So just pay attention to it. Be conscious of it. Be aware. And when they're there, work it. With a lot of these things, we know it. We know it. And that's going to be another episode. We know it. We say, oh, we're so confused.